Thanks for tuning into the Troncast with Tron Jordheim. Thanks for your support. Uh, I'm going to have a talk today with uh, a fellow I haven't known too long. He works with me in a co-working space I'm at. And uh, I think one of the big advantages of being in a co-working space is getting to meet all the people that uh, you bump into going in and out. And Arch has been in the software development business for a long time and, and has some really interesting stories to tell about how he's ridden the different waves of uh, development and seen many different changes happen. So stay tuned. There's going to be a message or two from our sponsors. Yay, sponsors. And then uh, I'll be talking with Arch. So stay tuned. Stay where you are. Keep listening. Thanks. Welcome back to the Troncast, the podcast. Uh, I'm talking today with Arch Brooks. So one of the nice things about being in a co-working space is you get to meet some interesting folks. So Arch and I seem to be on the same schedule sometimes, and I've been talking to him about some of the interesting projects he's worked on over time. So Arch has been working as a software development since the early 70s and has seen all kinds of interesting changes come and go and ridden lots of waves and so I, I think it'd just be really fascinating to hear about it so Arch tell us a little more about yourself and and, and tell us w- w- what you think of this crazy software ride you've been on well Tron it's it's been across actually six decades I started in the late 60s oh man okay and so uh, 68 was probably the first time that I wrote my first program and uh it's really been something. There were no CRTs, there were no PCs. Uh, PCs didn't come to about 20 or so years later. Right. <laughs> so we had to do everything basically with a card deck and a printout. Wow. And uh, if you had updates and changes, you would, of course, update and change the card deck. Typically, the way it worked was you would read a, a card deck with your code in, and then you would run that through a processor and apply updates to it. Mm. So you usually ended up with updates to the updates to the updates to the updates. Right. <laughs> so what, what kind of functions were people trying to get out of some of these decks? It was uh, pretty much the same type of functions that you get today. Right. Uh, you were processing a payroll, mm-hmm. and so you'd have to support all the functions that were available for, for that type of uh, activity. You had uh, general ledger, you had uh, accounts receivable, and accounts payable, mm-hmm. and all the all of those supporting functions. So the functionality, not so much has changed. Right. But how we accomplish that has changed greatly. Well, and the speed and the mass and all that is crazy now, right? Oh, the speed is, is phenomenal, and the, then the capacities... Um, I have on uh, my laptop about 10 times the capacity of the machine that we used when I first started out. Right. An IBM 360, 168 at the University of Missouri. Uh-huh. And uh, we thought we were the cat's pajamas at that point. I bet. But uh, 
that thing had something like a 16K memory. Mm. And it used those huge drums right. for disk storage. Right. And, uh, and of course, you had a bank of tape drives. Mm-hmm. Nine-track tapes that would like be 1,400 foot. Wow. A 10 and a half inch reel, basically. Wow. But uh, that was it. If you couldn't get it done with the card deck and those tape drives and those really slow drums, you might as well just clean out your locker and go sell insurance or something. <laughs> I imagine. I imagine. Well, and you were with TWA during some really interesting changes that that company went through and through some of the infancy of uh, some of the amazing things that happened in the airline industry, right? And, and it seems to me anyway, maybe it's just because I fly a lot, that the airline industry was at the forefront of so much technology development, trying to manage the bazillion planes they try to get up in the air every day and seats and schedules for staff and all that sort of thing. What, what was that all about? Well, it, it was quite interesting. Um, I was assigned initially to the computerized flight planning system, ah. and that is where we used IBM mainframes to fly every flight that TWA flew from the ground. Wow. And so all the information, the uh, notice to airmen runway, uh, notice to airmen notices, all of the, that information was done on an IBM mainframe. Mm. And so... We would go from there, and of course, the reservation system that was a programmed airline reservation system. Yeah. That was PARS. I was assigned uh, several different projects working on PARS also. But uh, the crew administration management system was one of my babies. Mm. That's where you booked the crew, the flight crew, for every flight that TWA flew for like a month in advance. Yeah. Wow. And so. That was running in like an over a weekend job. You'd start it up on Friday and would, you'd come back on Sunday. Uh-huh. And uh, maybe it was done, maybe it wasn't. Right. If it had a hiccup, it wasn't done. Uh-huh. But anyway, it would generate the schedules for the flights that they would fly for like on a, a month over in a, a month in advance. And so I was looking at that and I was like, why does this thing take so long? Mm-hmm. And so I looked at it, and then um, I had, of course, uh, access to all the, the source code, all the programs, and all of those were mostly COBOL programs. And so I noticed that it was spending a lot of time opening files and closing files and doing those types of things. Uh-huh. And so we had to stay in production, so I didn't modify that particular set of code. I copied everything over and modified uh, a new set of codes. And so, what I came up with was, why don't we just do the IOs once, and then call each function in that use that piece of data one time. Mm-hmm. And so I proceeded to do that, and it worked. That uh, over the weekend job would now run in about six minutes Whoa. to do the same amount of work. Wow, that's crazy. But it's just how you look at it and how you approach the problem uh-huh. as opposed to doing all that opening and closing files and spinning forward and all that rigmarole. I just was like, we'll read the information, we'll read the data once and then every place where that touches that data, 
we'll call that as a, as a sub-program, as a sub-function. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what happened. And they gave me a, a stipend, a several thousand dollar stipend, for coming up with that and making uh, the application do that. Well, I can't imagine what that saved him. And that's that's still like the most important program for travelers. I, I fly a lot, and and uh, the first thing I'll look for is if we have a crew, right? Right. <laughs> right? So I see a crew coming, there's a plane at the gate, I'm good. Yep. Right? You see the, the gate agent looking around, <laughs> and you know. Not a good sign. One flight crew person kind of standing there twiddling their thumbs or, you know, tapping on their phone. You're like, we're not going anywhere for a while. <laughs> exactly. And then um, the international flights were done manually. Whoa. And so my boss came in and says, hey, you know uh, how we got this uh, crew administration management system uh, running for domestic? I was like, yeah. He says, that's your baby? I said, yeah. He says, well, we want the same thing only for the international flights. And I was like, really? <laughs> And people in Hank won't, oh, never mind. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I designed the system from scratch that scheduled all the flights that TWA flew internationally. Right. And so now we had uh, a domestic crew scheduling system and also an international crew uh, scheduling system. Hmm. And uh, there was different challenges on both of those. Uh, the main one was determining what flights were going to fly for a month in advance. And so our flight operations out of New York right. would set that up for us. As soon as they would get that, they would send it to me, and then I would set, our, set up our software to uh, process it using, that, using those uh, inputs. So you're already doing capacity analysis and, and forward-looking seats and all that sort of stuff at that time, right? Yeah. Yeah. 70, 76, 77 time frame, something mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> well, I can't imagine the competitive edge that gave to, to the airlines who were doing similar things, right? That was probably the difference between, you know, I'm trying to think who went out about that time. Eastern probably went out about that time or, you know, some of those others. Yeah, it was Eastern, and, and there's there's several others. But I had a lot of time off because I work all the time, and then uh, they wouldn't pay. I was in management, of course, so they wouldn't pay you overtime. Right. They give you compensating time off. And it would be good, though. Well, it, it worked out. Mm-hmm. And then I could take my badge, uh, pink badge, TWA badge, was management. Yeah. I could take my badge out of my plastic pocket protector and put it in a ticket machine uh-huh. and swap it. And uh, after that swipe, I could fill out the from and the to. Oh, so I nice. go from Kansas City to New York to London uh-huh. or to Paris mm-hmm. or to anywhere TWA flew. And I was usually in first class. And uh, the only thing that wasn't covered were some specific taxes. Right. They would pick those right. up. So gate tax or whatever, gate fees, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and, and other. Okay, so you flew to London for $27, right, or whatever? Less. <laughs> <laughs> and then on some days, I'd fly to London, have dinner, and a haircut, mm-hmm. and fly back. Nice. Because flying was basically free. Yeah. I had the time. 
And so it was just like, let's do this. Nice. And first class on TWA, uh, you were eating lobster. Yeah, I imagine that was good living in those yeah, days. You were eating steak. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the libations. Yeah. That was that was top shelf. <laughs> well, and you were you were doing your research for the project too, weren't you? Uh, getting lit most yeah. of the <laughs> <laughs> Right. Right. So, you know, fast forward to today to what people are doing with software and things now. It's I mean it's amazing how many, you know, pre made tools people put together for all kinds of things and then they cobble the tools together and come up with a tool for something else and it's pretty interesting really how it's how it's kind of changed like for instance this podcast thing right uh, I, I ran a radio show that I uh, syndicated self-syndicated in I don't know what it was 1988 1990 something like that we were we were taping the show on tape right we had to splice it with razors and tape and then I made cassette copies of it and mailed it to the you know half a dozen radio stations that were playing it, right? Wow. Now I tap record on my mobile phone, and when I'm done, I tap upload, and I'm done, right? So it's uh, it's a crazy world, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the uh, digitized world has offered us a lot of solutions that weren't existent before. Um, as an example... When I worked for the DOD, we had another network. The uh, internet, as we know it today, was an ARPANET system, ARPA. And all we would use that thing for was sending emails mm -hmm. back and forth across the country to other technicians. Right. And uh, the an early version of Slack, basically, wasn't it? <laughs> kind of, sort of. <laughs> but today, we call it the internet because right. that's what it became. Yeah. But uh, there's also the Data Defense Network. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the Data Defense Network, that's basically what all of our United States defense systems use. And I sent uh, a movie quality reel mm -hmm. from my office in San Francisco to my office in New York uh -huh. in less than three minutes. And when it arrived at the office in New York, it was theater quality. Whoa. The movie. Yeah, it's, uh, that's quite something. Most yeah. people have no clue of the computing power and the computing capability that is available here in the United States. They think the Internet is it. They think the Internet is uh, the, the, the top of the, the summit. Yeah. But it's, like I say, it's what we use to send emails back and forth to... Uh, other technicians across the United States. Right, right. <laughs> so it's like, you know, the old subway system compared to flying just about, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it was... Uh, it was uh, snail mail. Right, right. <laughs> but, you know, everybody's they're all hyped up, and it's, oh, this is the internet, and... Um, we can do this and we can do so much they have not a clue right right as to What's the real there? computing power mm -hmm. that's available in the United States of course you'd have to have security clearances and everything else to get an account on there right um, my defense account is uh, AB34 my uh, data defense network account is AB34 
which I was about the 34th person to have access Whoa. on that network. Uh-huh. So it used your first initial, your last initial, and then there was a number signed by right. by uh, the DOD. And so AB34, that's... That's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. So what do you see in today at trends that small and medium-sized businesses are working on? Or maybe medium-sized businesses is more interesting because the small ones, my impression is we just all use free tools and just do the best we can cobbling it together. But it seems like the medium-sized businesses are, are finding all kinds of interesting ways to tap away at, uh, you know, Goliath or however you see it. So Well, <clears throat> so much has changed. Uh, today... The $8 million IBM mainframe will run on a $250 laptop. Right, right. So you have that level of computing power available to the mom and pop, to the mid-sized business, as well as uh, larger concerns. You harness that with uh, a data center that may have uh, telecom communications and, and available lines Mm-hmm. And, you know, you basically have a mainframe for about 400 bucks, right. which is unheard of. Mm-hmm. They have uh, the exact same functions, the exact same capabilities, the exact same operating environment, as well as programming environment, and, and those systems on a, uh, a, a laptop or a notebook, that's just... That's awesome. Mm-hmm. But what allows that to occur is the 64-bit architecture. That is what the mainframe used back in the day, and yeah. that is currently what is still used. And then a lot of your PCs are based on a 64-bit architecture. Mm-hmm. So 64 is 64 all around the world every day of the week. So yeah, if you know how to load your software up, and to do it and and to configure it, mm-hmm. and uh, on the mainframe you do an, an initial program load, an IPL. Uh, as long as you know how to do that and can get things set up, sky's the limit. Yeah. And those, that's the XE version of MVS. Uh, like I say, it's a multi-million dollar platform, mm-hmm. but with a a little magic and 64-bit architecture. Right. It's available to every, anyone that's big enough to, to download a few libraries and, and to, to configure them and to set it up and run it. Mm-hmm. Which, that would be unheard of. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So, how are you bringing some of that to some of your clients to help them solve some problems where, you know, they, they're doing forehead slaps going, wow, I didn't know you did. Wow. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I don't take my customers any faster than they like to travel. Well, that's probably good. Yeah, so <laughs> if they're content and they're happy with what they have, um, if it ain't broke, we don't fix it. Mm-hmm. But for those that uh, want to take the next step up, uh, we're ready when they are. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it matters not to us. We'll let them put their foot in the stirrup and take off. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things a lot of people are talking about, too, is how uh, artificial intelligence and robotics and so on is taking over 
you know, human function or things like that. And one place people point to is in the software development field. And so I'm, I'm curious what, what you think about all that, what you're seeing. I mean, I don't know how many trends you've seen come and go, but you know, there's, there's always another one on the horizon. So what, what are you thinking about when you're not, you know, helping customers figure stuff out? Well, <clears throat> I've been uh, in AI probably since its inception. And that happened in the early 80s uh, with uh, the M4 inference engines. Of course, there were other inference engines that were before that one, but that's when uh, uh, the rubber started to meet the road and it started to be something of, of value. And so uh, from that inference engine, then we had uh, Key Goldworks, which is a AI platform, and it used LISP programs. LISP was the programming language mm -hmm. that you did that, that you used for that. And it would take a set of data and look, and look at it, examine it, and come up with uh, a best case scenario which would fit that particular data. Mm -hmm. Now that could be from selecting a bottle of wine uh, based on if you had um, halibut, um, what the meat was, right. what the veggies were. Right. And uh, this, this AI platform would tell you uh, you want a red Sauvignon or you want a, 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 a white Rhine wine uh -huh. for this particular meal. Uh-huh. Yeah. <clears throat> it seemed non-trivial at the time, but it's, it's those types of thought patterns and those types of thought processes that have to happen yeah. in an AI environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing that, that is kind of scary to me was I have written code generators and that is a computer program mm -hmm. that writes the computer program right the source code yeah right and so I was working at Black and Beach Consulting Engineers in Kansas City at the time as before I went to TWA and they had something called a symbolic stream generator and I was like that sounds like a name for a band well, it could have been, but <laughs> right. it was a, a UNIVAC process uh -huh. because we were still using Sperry UNIVAC because IBM couldn't crunch numbers fast enough for the engineering firm. Right. So, symbolic stream generator, and I'm like, hmm. And it, what, what it was was a scripting engine. Mm -hmm. And you could set various aspects up in a, in a particular file, and you could run a script against it, uh, which was built into the symbolic stream, stream generator, and you could swap out values and uh, use that type of a scenario. And so I was thinking one day, and I was like, well, why couldn't I use this to generate source code? Right. Because the compiler isn't going to know that the machine generated the source code. Mm -hmm. All it's going to do is grab it, look for errors. And if it's if there are no errors, it's going to compile. And if there are errors, it's going to kick them out. Mm -hmm. And so I proceeded with that, and sure enough, it worked. <laughs> it was like, wow. that's what I said. Right. Right. <laughs> and, so where's the end of that? Because it, it generates and generates and generates oh, in theory, right? It's still going. Right. Right now, I've got uh, code generators that write C++ applications. Uh-huh. 
and I'll throw up a panel and I'll say, okay, I want uh, the base platform for 10C++ applications. Mm-hmm. And I'll put a family ID in and tell it the number 10 and press enter. And then 10 complete applications, fully functional applications come out the back end mm-hmm. based on what that family name is. And uh, there are zero errors, zero defects. Just been zero time debugging them. Right. And so you you're down on the ground running with whatever your application is. Mm-hmm. After you use this code generator, I have those code generators for Fortran. I have them for Cobol. I have them for Pascal. And of course, like I'm saying, I have them for C++. Wow. Now Delphi <clears throat> or Delphi, ever how you want to pronounce it is a platform that runs on Windows that you have one set of source code. And based on that one set of source code, it'll run on the Android, it'll run on the iPhone, it will run on a notebook, it will run on laptops, as well as desktops. Mm-hmm. And and that's a big stride forward because you have one set of code that right. will run on all those platforms. Right. So you don't have to have all those different versions anymore. Mm-hmm. You just uh, tell it, okay, well, now I want this to run on Android. Uh, this application now runs on iPhone. Mm-hmm. This application now, same application runs on OS X. Yeah. And so that's a big step ahead. But it has some overhead involved in it. And that's why I prefer... C++ and a, uh, a front-end API mm-hmm. because uh, once you have those source codes, you can take them to any platform that has a C++ compiler and compile and link and go, Right. and it doesn't make any difference. Where you designed it, it runs the same. Mm-hmm. That's what they call cross-platform. Right. So that's... That had to have been a huge game changer. Because just from the little bit I saw of the development world as a as a marketing guy trying to make things happen, right? You'd, you'd see people start scratching their head about, well, how are we gonna get it to do it on all the different places you need it to be done, right? That, right. that head scratching doesn't really happen anymore, does it? Not too much. No, unless, that's amazing, right? Unless you're, unless you're you know, not aware of mm-hmm. capabilities. Right. Um, You can you can uh, pretty much eliminate the the entire cross-platform scenario. Mm-hmm. What I do, especially for if it's going to be a web-based application, is I'll use Bootstrap Twitter Bootstrap Four, mm-hmm. which is a mobile application, but it will also play on all those platforms that are above the iPhone, the Android, the notebook, the laptop. Uh-huh. And so now you have a web-based application that is mobile-ready. Right. But also will play on these other platforms. And um, I'm looking at turnkey situations. Mm-hmm. Whereas you can crank out as many of those as you need to have. Right. And then you also have uh, the back-end data layer mm-hmm. and uh, I have ways of uh, automating that also and I use MySQL mm-hmm. 
uh, relational database management system for the back end because it's so widely used and so widely supported. Right. But uh, it's kind of exciting because you can, in, in a very short period of time, you can hit the ground running with something that's really viable. Right. And something's going to last for quite a number of years. So yeah. the, the horizon is quite bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a limitless number of possibilities right. that uh, you can employ to get a specific set of tasks done. And uh, it's, I think it's really great. Well, so you're still just solving problems, right? You're still looking at at, uh, at a process and going, oh, why does it run like that? Yep. Right. So I recognize uh-huh. I recognize patterns. That's what I do. Right. That's why they pay me the big bucks. Right. And once I recognize the pattern, I can automate it. Mm-hmm. Now that can be from functional specifications, that can be from existing software, yeah. or that can be from software that someone wants written from scratch. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 kind of interesting, it's kind of unique, but uh, how you say this country, computer, been better, better good to me. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Baseball and computer, that's right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. Ah, well, that, that's really fascinating. Uh, I, I'd love to talk more about this as it as it kind of takes off. But I, I think uh, you know, looking towards the horizon and seeing that you know cross-platform is no longer a problem and generating interesting solutions isn't a problem. Maybe the the only problem really is just uh, you know being curious and asking good questions. Maybe that's what it comes down to. And that's probably basic human nature, isn't it? Just be curious and ask a good question. Well, pretty much, but that's that's on, <laughs> that's on the business side. Right. Um, in 1975, I worked for Black & Beach Consulting Engineers and I'm certified nuclear engineer. I'm certified to write computer software in the construction, maintenance, and operation of nuclear fuel power plants in uh, the United States of America. Uh-huh. So the scientific side of it is also very fascinating. Right. That's where you can take uh, software that's loosely coupled mm-hmm. and uh, pull it into an application to solve various scientific engineering uh, pr- problems right? and equations. I uh, also do a little trick with games uh-huh. and the uh, gaming software engines that are available and I like to set up scenarios where you're, you're flying in outer space basically and you're trying to get to a specific pattern mm-hmm. and uh, we have things like warp drive yeah. You uh, get to a certain part, point in the game and you just appear in another dimension or in another uh-huh. area of space. And uh, I, I happen to like Star Trek and uh, one of my favorite shows is the Star Trek Discovery. Uh-huh. Some of the graphics and some of the things they do with that is is exciting. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I work a lot. I don't have much time for sleeping because there's so much to do and so much fun to have. <laughs> so many interesting things, right? Oh, yeah. Too busy playing and inventing. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking a little time to visit with me and talk about some of this fascinating stuff. It's, uh, I mean, the, the, the long perspective is pretty interesting to have and uh, seeing what's going to be the next next is going to be a lot of fun. Yep. So where do people find you, Arch? How do they get in touch with you? 
Uh, you can send me an email at arch at archbrooks.com. Seems simple enough. And then uh, you can get to my main website at archbrooks.us. And uh, you can go from there. There'll be some links that will get you to my technology portal as well as some other places. Um, I have pages on there for science, uh, for engineering, uh, and for a lot of uh, what I would consider interesting topics, as, as well as uh, a hobby page. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Archbrooks.us. Go yes. there. Go there. <laughs> Thanks, Arch. I appreciate it. Anytime, Brian. All right. Good deal. Thanks. Superb. That was it. What do you do for sales training and team building exercises? What do you do for customer service training and team building exercises? I know you're trying all kinds of things and there's some good stuff out there. But I swear, if anyone ever asks me to do another trust fall, my brain's gonna explode. So let's come up with something different. I've been trying to find something different for a while. And I thought, well, why not? Let's come up with a sales training game or a customer service training game, something fun that everyone can get into and that they can laugh about and challenge each other and poke each other a little bit and feel some of the emotional ups and downs that you get when you're in customer service and sales. So I went to a game jam uh, headed up by the local regional economic development group here in Columbia and Boone County, Missouri. And I met uh, a group of game developers and we had so much fun that we ended up creating a game called Starship Junkyard, which is a great and hilarious way to do team building for your businesses, for your sales teams, for your customer service teams. And it's turned out to be just a great family and friends game too. Something you can sit down and play for half an hour or an hour or a great pub game. It's hilarious. It's called Starship Junkyard, and you can find it on Facebook at uh, the Starship Junkyard, the card game. You can buy it on thegamecrafter.com. Go to thegamecrafter.com and look up Starship Junkyard and buy a copy and play it. It's hilarious. So try that for your next team building exercise. Try that for your next sales training meeting. Sit down and play Starship Junkyard and you will be happy you did. Go check it out on Facebook, Twitter. Go buy the game at thegamecrafter.com. The Starship Junkyard, the card game. Thank you. What do you do for sales training when sales training is so frustrating and seems so counterproductive sometimes, right? Because the people getting trained are sometimes resistant or sometimes they've been through so many training courses where they just tune out everything you say and you sound like the teacher in Charlie Brown. Sometimes the people doing the training are so frustrated because they come up with some really good material and go out in the field and prove some 
really good phraseology and techniques and approaches and then when they try to train it sometimes it doesn't work in reality the way it it worked for them or it doesn't work for the particular people doing it or the folks who get the training just don't feel like putting in the time to perfect it it's really frustrating for the trainers it's also really frustrating for the higher-ups, for the big bosses, because they invest in training and they invest in training materials. And sometimes the numbers don't move, and so they wonder, well, why are we doing this? What's the point? So I've come up with a couple different approaches for sales training that maybe are helpful. One idea is to make it a self-driven process where the salesperson is on their own sales journey, their quest for sales proficiency, their quest to be their own sales hero. So if you want to check that out, go to solvingsales.com. That's all about my self-driven sales journeys program. And you can subscribe to that for, I think right now it's $5 a month. I'm making it super easy so people can get in there and start creating their own journey to sales mastery. SolvingSales.com SolvingSales.com Thank you.